This is Performance Delivered, insider secrets for digital marketing success with Stefan Horst and Dave Antiel. Welcome to the Performance Delivered, insider secrets for digital marketing success podcast, where we talk with marketing and agency executives and learn how they build successful businesses and their personal brand. I'm your host, Stefan Horst. The topic for today's episode is why B2C should be viewed as a channel versus an identity. Here to speak with me is Ashley Knox, who is the COO and CMO of Hansen Shaving, a DTC razor manufacturer based in Canada. Ashley has over 20 years of experience in sales and marketing, working for both global brands and startups alike. Ashley, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Ashley, before we start talking about today's topic, tell our listeners a little bit more about yourself. How did you get started in your career and what led you to being a COO and CMO at Henson Shaving? Yeah, I mean, I think it's probably like a lot of people where it, you never sort of followed the plan you thought you were going to. I actually went to university and took physics, which I, must help me at some point, but is definitely not, didn't, wasn't necessary for the career I ended up pursuing. But uh, I, th I think near the end of that, I, I had done some, uh, some co-op work terms and things like that and just had that moment of, um, this was also back in the late 90s, early 2000s when that first dot-com bubble burst. And so a lot of the companies that I'd done some internships with basically went out of business. And so I had that moment of time to say, you sure you want to work in a lab the rest of your life or not? Thought maybe I would try something else. Ended up getting a sort of a junior level marketing gig with, uh, with Microsoft, which set me on the path of doing sort of sales and marketing, but always with tech companies, you know, including um, BlackBerry, which is, we're based here in Waterloo, Ontario. That's the headquarters of BlackBerry. So I worked there as well. And so that path just kind of gave me like right into the gate, really strong sort of like global brand marketing because, you know, we had just launched Xbox at Microsoft going up against PlayStation. Obviously, when I was at BlackBerry, we're going up against um, iPhone and later Android. So I got like a front row seat to a lot of really neat brand challenges, which I think are beneficial for me now sort of working with a startup because I can keep those larger sort of brand lessons in mind as you're starting to build a brand from scratch. Interesting. Now, today's topic is why did you see should be viewed as a channel versus an identity. What do you mean by DTC as an identity? Well, I mean, I think if you look like, I don't know, maybe a decade ago, maybe it's longer now, and you start to think of some of those, just the fact that a brand maybe chose DTC, that in itself was its differentiator, right? If you think about Casper or Warby Parker, those are like some obvious examples where the innovation was the channel. Nobody was ordering mattresses or or eyewear online at that time. So it felt just really innovative and fresh. And I'd almost argue that I think at the time, consumers almost sort of self-imagined that the products were maybe even more innovative than they were just by that association, right? It's like, oh, wow, did you know you can just order your mattress online and get it shipped to you in one of those neat boxes? And the whole, the whole idea was so fresh, right? And even in our category of shaving, right? Dollar Shave Club came out, got great traction, more or less by changing the distribution model, right? The razor itself was very familiar to the other options that were available at the time. You could get a subscription. It was pretty cheap. You get it sent to you every month. So back then, sort of D to C was this, was the differentiator, right? The, the 
the method, the distribution method itself was really unique. Now, if you fast forward to now, all three of those brands are in brick and mortar as well. And honestly, I think that's a pretty natural evolution. So now that D2C is sort of matured, I just think we should call out that natural evolution for what it is, which means we should start to realize that a brand that starts D2C is, is doing that, right? They're starting there. Mm-hmm. So if a brand that adds wholesale or retail to the mix, I don't think that's an identity crisis. I think that's just growth. Mm-hmm. A lot of times it's almost like external parties that like identify a brand as D2C when maybe it's just a channel. But I think there are a lot of D2C, D2C founders and operators that maybe over-rotated on that distribution being their identity. Again, 10, 12, 13 years ago, maybe you could. But even those trailblazers have had to evolve. Nowadays, I would say if you're starting a business D2C in 2023, you, that just means you're, you've chosen that as your first channel. That, that's not the identity of your company, in, in my opinion. I see. I see. And kind of that makes sense, right? I mean, if you, if you want to start a business and you want to communicate directly with the target customers and generate revenues and revenue and grow your company, that keeps you in full control. Well, when you have to find distribution partners or even get into brick and mortar, that gets more expensive and it's probably a much more difficult play. I mean, I think that's right. I think, I think D2C is actually the perfect starting place, mm-hmm. right? Because it's, it's relatively, again, anyone who's done D2C knows it's, it, it can be complex, but it's relatively simple, right? You, you, you get a, an online store up with Shopify or whoever, it's very easy to get on the ad platforms. It's very easy to find even early on to find a a 3PL or someone to help, you know, ship product. Um, Now, obviously you need a product. You need to be able to talk about the value proposition, but assuming you have those things, I mean, assuming you wouldn't start a business if you didn't have those things, D2C is, is very, very easy to get going. Um, Doesn't mean you'll be profitable or something, but it's easy to get your product in front of, hundreds or thousands or millions of eyeballs starting, you know, starting your business pitching to retail. I mean, I, I couldn't even imagine starting that way anymore. It's, yeah. It almost feels archaic, right? Even though that's mm-hmm. how the world worked for hundreds of years. So yeah, I don't think D2C is a bad distribution channel. In fact, I think it's the perfect starting channel. We've just always viewed it in that lens. We're yeah. going to start intentionally this way to hit, you know, checkpoint A, B, C, D. And then eventually, you know, if our company grows and does well, I would fully expect us to be in, in the traditional retail. I don't yeah. think that means we're, we've, we're no longer disruptive. I think it means we made it. <laughs> I think ending up in retail should almost be like a sign of accomplishment, you know, not a, oh, they're, they're relenting, they're giving in, they're, they've decided that they, they don't want to win the, no, no, no you got successful enough to the point that target called you or, you know, insert retailer here. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I kind of agree. Um, obviously during the pandemic, we had a lot of companies that came from brick and mortar needed to go online because their customers couldn't go into their stores anymore. That was kind of the other, the other way around, right? They existed in brick and mortar, but the necessity pushed them into another channel, basically into another situation. And, you know, once you have a brand that, that works really well, uh, from a DTC perspective, I would say it's probably much, much easier to have these conversations with the targets 
in Walmart of the world and say, hey, you know what? You really should pick up our product in your store because there's a demand here already. And, um, you know, we can prove it. Yeah, and it, it lowers the risk for them, right? Because yeah, if you can exactly. say, hey, look at, look at your sales volume here, doing it ourselves, you know, then it becomes a lot easier for them to, uh, to make the jump. Yeah, yeah, of course. Now, what are some drawbacks from around identifying as a DGC brand? So there don't need to be any. I think if, if that delivery channel, like if going direct is actually unique, um, differentiating for your product category, then making that identification can be good, good reinforcement. I just, I just don't know if that's the case anymore. You can buy everything, you can buy everything online now. So if your identity is hinged on that premise, then that feels a bit shaky to me, and it could limit some of your approaches. Um, you know, I think some of the drawbacks beyond that. There's a couple sort of easy examples. I'd say, you know, you know, we were just mentioning. Let's say a wholesale opportunity comes up or a retail opportunity. But you say no because, you know, in your head, you're a, you know, quote unquote, D to C brand. Or, or maybe you want to focus on the perceived higher margins that, that D to C has to offer. Well, one, do the math to make sure your CPA is low enough for that statement to be true. That's not always the case. And secondly, I think wholesale can have, can often have like less operational burden. You know, the, Again, that direct consumer comes with a lot of upsides. The downsides are you're doing everything yourself. So shipping an, a bulk order to a retailer where they distribute, they do reverse logistics, they handle, you know, they merchandise it, all that stuff. That's depending again on your product and your category. That can actually be a more streamlined path. As crazy as that sounds, you always think as D2C is easier. And again, starting it is, but over time, you know, we, right now, we actually have both. We do D2C and we have wholesale and all of our wholesale orders still, still end up through our Shopify platform. And, mm-hmm. and you can just see these big, big spikes, right? Oh, someone just came and made a big bulk order. It's one shipment and it's done. <laughs> it's actually kind of nice. Mm-hmm. Um, I think another example would be, you know, the desire to stay in control of your brand. There, you know, there's this perception that if you sell to, again, a Target or someone else that that either waters down your brand or they're going to want to position you in a way that's not aligned with what you want to do. And I think generally speaking, it's good to have your guard up for that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. But I think, I think that's sort of one half of the equation. I think there's a lot of D to C brands that I think are starting to realize for the last couple of years that a good retail presence actually works back up the other way. Like it actually helps your online business. It, it really, I hate the word synergy because it sounds like a buzzword, but there, there really is that nice synergy between the channels. And, and I've talked to some D2C founders where, who've done their own retail, like uh, their own brick and mortar stores. And they've actually found that, you know, if they have a store in pick a city, Austin, Texas, the fact that they have that retail physical brick and mortar presence in the market means that their online business actually converts better. Their, their acquisition costs go down. Mm-hmm. So I think that's something that if you view it, you know, as a, as the sort of the, the broader picture of, Hey, we're just trying to sell product A to customer B, then you don't have to look at them necessarily as competing functions. They both serve the same end result. And I think more and more brands are coming to that conclusion, but I still talk to a lot of brand owners who their first gut reaction is no, 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 we need to do that ourselves. No. 
What's the ideal or optimal role of a direct-to-consumer strategy in your view? I mean, the first one is what we talked on. Like, I think it's, there's no better way to get a business off the ground in 2023. It's easier ever than to be able to tell people about a product to actually transact, you know, take the money, um, ship it, all those things. You know, from the start, we treated D2C as the starting point. But within months, we had, I guess this might be specific to us, but we had, we had shaving retailers reach out to us to resell. Within the first two years, we had distributors from all over the world reaching out. Why? Because they saw an ad. <laughs> they, they heard about us through a sponsorship or something. So all our DVC efforts recruited them, essentially. So it got us off the ground and it got us our first couple dozen of wholesale partners. And those, again, early on with all the uncertainty and things, those hedges in your business are just so incredibly valuable. So that if D2C has a, a, like a little slump, then you know you've got wholesale orders or vice versa. Um, I think the other optimal role of D2C is, I think, certainly around, you know, customer retention. You just have more levers you can pull. You know, again, I'll keep going with the Target example. If Target buys your product, the transaction is more or less done there. So you have to hope that either within the packaging or through social, some other charge, maybe you can bring them back into your world. Whereas if you're transacting yourself online, D2C, there's just a greater chance that they're going to sort of auto enroll into that ecosystem. Now that's not as relevant for us. We basically sell you one product and you, <laughs> and that's it. The average online brand has, you know, upsells or subscriptions or, or, you know, multiple SKUs to be able to bring people back for that lifetime value. So I think that's a really strong role that D2C can play. Again, it doesn't mean you shouldn't do retail. It just means D2C should focus on retention. Mm-hmm. How does brand identity or brand identity strategy differ from what you just talked about? Well, I think your brand identity sort of transcends your distribution channels, right? It's your beliefs, it's your, it's your, you know, your core offer, your, your purpose. Mm-hmm. I don't think that means it needs to be grandiose. You don't need to be saving the world necessarily. But I would, you know, I'd argue that most companies' purpose isn't, you know, to sell direct to customers. You know, that's just a way that they transact the purpose, but the purpose is typically something much, much broader than that. And even then I would say like, you know, in the life cycle of a, of a new company, you're probably going to transact with, in, unless the company is born out of a purpose, which does happen for sure. Oftentimes though, it's born out of a product idea. Right. And so typically you would, you would go to market with the product idea, even before you had fully identified what that purpose or identity is. So step one often nowadays is product idea, see if there's a product market fit, then elevate the product idea into a brand identity. So again, because in my mind, if that's your order of operations, then necessarily selling to customers direct isn't your brand identity, you've already been doing it. Um, And you were doing it around the product idea. So, I think you can actually operate for one to three to four years without even having that brand identity fully baked yet. Again, unless you're born of purpose, like, hey, our, our, our goal is to whatever. Yeah. Actually, that doesn't necessarily mean you, you don't want to build a brand. It's just the identity might change, adjust over time. Yeah. I think, I think early on, it's great to... It, it's okay to to have this like notion of experimenting, right? Because really what you want to do is you want to 
if you don't have product market fit, then you don't really have anything. Yeah. And testing that, um, obviously you want to make sure the product is viable, but you know, I think testing that is, is really like your company's main objective early on. Mm -hmm. We have this product. Can we sell it to someone? And, and once we, once you say yes, then who's buying it? Once you know those two things, then you're off. Yeah. And I would, I would say that even established brands sometimes have to adjust their identity based on how the market changes and, and, and certain other things. It doesn't mean they have to throw it completely overboard or that they do throw it completely overboard, but certain, certain attributes or certain things that they want to be seen for or, or known for, you know, might have to be massaged a little bit. Absolutely. Like I, like I alluded to off the top, I got a, unfortunately for for me, a, a negative version of this, but still a useful lesson to learn early in my career, a front row seat of that when I was at BlackBerry, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. BlackBerry sort of had this idea about what it was, um, which I think it, I think it knew what it, it was for the most part. I don't think it cared about what its customer wanted as much. Mm. And it just turned so fast. Now that's, that's a very unique example where one, you're competing against Apple. <laughs> Good luck. Two, in a sort of this emerging, you know, highly visible category. You know, if you're selling cookware, you can maybe, <laughs> you can maybe afford to struggle a bit and turn it around. We were, we were sort of had all eyes on us. And so those mistakes, we paid a, an order of magnitude more than maybe the typical company might. Mm -hmm. But it's because it, it, it wasn't able to evolve the, that sort of brand strategy quickly enough because the brand strategy, if you've got it, sort of that identity, if you've got that baked, it informs everything you do. It's not just your marketing, it's your product strategy, it's how you deal with your employees, it's how you deal with your customers, it's everything. So it matters, but there's, you know, there's like everything in, in e-commerce and especially like in, uh, in, in setting up new brands, there's a, there is that like growth timeline and building a perfect brand identity on day one, that's not where that belongs. You got to sort of, you need more data, I think. Yeah, yeah. If we use Hanson shaving as, as kind of, as an example, I mean, there are a lot of shaving brands out there already. What was it where you guys said, you know, where Henson Shaving said, you know, we want to found another one. And, and, and how are we going to set ourselves apart from, from the rest that is out there already? Yeah, I mean, it's a totally fair question. And actually, I'll get back to that because exactly what you're saying is actually informed our own brand identity. Because mm -hmm. there are a lot of brands out there, right? So for us, the genesis was really more around... Our CEO, his brothers own an aerospace machine shop here in Ontario, Canada. Uh -huh. And when COVID hit, they had some of their big, you know, aerospace satellite projects canceled because no one was no one was going outside for a while there. <laughs> and so they they made this decision to like, you know, they'd always made parts for other companies. They thought, well, what if we could make something ourselves? Maybe we could sort of control our own destiny, right? Hmm. Not be at the whims of yeah. these are these other projects. And just at a circumstance, they, they started looking at, at razors. And this, this sort of ties into the brand identity thing because they're these machinists who make very, very complicated parts at very high tolerance. And so they were looking at building a razor only through that lens. Hey, if we just wanted to make a razor well, knowing what we know, how would we make it, right? Versus a lot of folks, sometimes it's more of like, you know, uh, there'd be a business input to that. 
Yeah. So specifically in the shaving case, oh, we'll make sure that the blades are proprietary so we can sell more, mm -hmm. you know, or, you know, make sure that the razor doesn't cost that much. We want to sell it as cheap as we can because we know we're going to sell them creams or lotions or something later. And those are all fine business models. There's nothing wrong with that. Mm -hmm. Just wasn't the mindset of a couple of aerospace machinists, right? It was nowhere in their mind to think about that. So because they sort of looked just, you know, at the mechanics of it, then what we've done from a, a marketing perspective has been like, well, you know, there's a ton of shaving companies out here. And there's been actually, it, it's sort of strange to hear that, you know, while razors have been around for hundreds of years, if you look at just the last decade or so, you've got Harry's, you've got Manscaped, you've got um, Dollar Shave Club that have all become really big, really successful. Yeah. So even though it's an old category, there's sort of been a lot of new players in it. So mm -hmm. we were also wary of that. We're like, oh, great. These guys have all come to the scene. And now we're another one. Like, great. Like, isn't there some fatigue here? Yeah. So we just try to... Um, now, the, the flip side of that, I don't want to say anything negative about any of those companies, but they sort, of weren't, they sort of weren't out necessarily to solve product problems. They were more looking at sort of brand alternatives to the incumbents, right? Mm -hmm. And I think they all did really well with that strategy. So I'm not, <laughs> I think they've done very well. Our approach has been to sort of like just kind of restore confidence in the industry, in the, in the actual product. So we've been, um, we've been trying to just be very matter of fact and try to like explain shaving as dull as a proposition as that sounds mm -hmm. um, in the name of, you know, being able to differentiate ourselves. Cause yeah, at the end of the day, a razor is maybe a razor for the average person. Uh, our approach has just been to like talk about the mechanics of it. Very matter of fact, no gimmicks, no humor, no anything, just, just go very down the middle. And, and that's how we've been able to carve out this nice little niche. Yeah. Interesting. Now, D2C in general seems to have had its ups and downs in the last few years. What are some of the challenges we might have talked about some, already in the previously or before um, that you see? I mean, I think not, not to get too macro here, but I do think there's, I would expect a trend towards first order profitability. Mm -hmm. I think interest rates climbing, there's been some pretty high profile investment flare outs and, you know, bank, <laughs> banks collapsing. There's sort of a lot of nervousness out in the market right now. So I think the idea of a brand not being profitable, but being able to continually raise funds in order to scale, I, I just think that's going to start to shift. Mm -hmm. um, or at the very least, I'd caution folks from playing that game moving for the next little while. I think, you know, when I say first order profitability, if someone buys on that first order, you should be making money. The way that a lot of e-commerce works or has worked for the last decade is I'll break even or lose money on the first one, but I'll get profit over time mm -hmm. by either selling them more of that thing or selling them other things. I think if I was starting a business in 2023 online, I would, I would say you need to make money on the initial order. That's going to be the way to do it just because of all those sort of macroeconomic factors now. So if you need like, yeah, if you need multiple purchases or multiple months to make a new customer profitable, then I would, I would scale with extreme caution. Because I just think the lending costs are going to go really high. The other thing, actually, with DTC, and this is a this is a boring answer, but but my goodness, the accounting portion of running an online business still feels super archaic. <laughs> like everything, like three PLs, you know, Facebook and Tik. There's all these like Shopify. There's all these really cool platforms that let you go from zero to hero so fast. 
Yeah. And then in, and then you get to doing the books, it's still like pulling teeth. So mm-hmm. I don't know what enterprising accountant out there wants to start a online accounting startup, but I, it feels like a pain point that everyone has. Um, mm-hmm. I think beyond that, you know, I think a lot of the iOS privacy stuff that hurt things, I think we're mostly past that. It doesn't seem to be top of mind as much as it was a year ago. I think that, so I, I'm not too, I'm not as worried about those challenges. I think there's plenty of opportunities and like AI, not to shift into a whole other conversation, but certainly AI and some of these emerging technologies, I would suggest they sort of need to be, I don't know that if you're an e-commerce owner today or founder, you need to be taking direct action, but you need to be looking at it. Mm -hmm. I think you just, it's be almost irresponsible not to at least be paying attention at this point. That makes sense. How about uh, the cookie topic? Yeah, like I said, it's not, for us, other than a small blip last year, it hasn't really impacted us. Most of the other founders I've talked to, they say that it's they've come out the other end of it now. It sort of depends what your your goal is. If for customer acquisition, I think you're okay because money in, money out, you should still be able to track things relatively effectively. Where it comes to pose a problem is with those retention plays and with the things like that. For the most part, I think, I also think that that type of cookie tracking isn't something a small company needs to even worry about early on. Like you need to hit a certain level of, of scale, like in the eight figures to be really worried about that. I think it's been one of those things that because it's so high profile, brands feel compelled to do all this really deep level attribution. And you, the, I would argue that you don't need to do that until you've reached a, a, a bigger level of scale. It's, it's not the droid you're looking for. Well, I mean, you might be limited in how you target people. You know, if you have to live off your first party information, you know, that might not allow you to be as detailed in, in your mid upper funnel activities as you've been or as you're able to do at the moment. Thank you so much for joining me on Performance Silver Podcast and sharing your thoughts on why DTC should be viewed as a channel rather than an identity. Now, if people want to find out more about you, about Henson Shaving, how can they get in touch? Yeah, I mean, I'm Ashley at HensonShaving.com. You can check us out on a website. I'm on LinkedIn. We're we're pretty easy to get a hold of. We're still a small team, um, and it's been uh, it's been a lot of fun to to grow it in a tumultuous time over the last couple of years with the pandemic. But it's been a lot of fun, and thanks so much for having me. Of course. Well, thanks everyone for listening. If you like the Performance of our Podcast, please subscribe to us and leave us a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast application. If you want to find out more about Symphonic Digital. You can visit us at symphonicdigital.com or follow us on Twitter at symphonichq. Thanks again and see you next time. Performance Delivered is sponsored by Symphonic Digital. Discover audience-focused and data-driven digital marketing solutions for small and medium businesses at symphonicdigital.com.